This is episode 237 of the Two Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of Two Birth and Beyond. I'm Jessie Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health, and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey, it's Anita here. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to let you know, if you're pregnant and want step-by-step guidance on how to have less pain and pelvic floor symptoms in pregnancy, how to prepare mentally and physically for labor and pushing, including how to minimize tearing, how to have your partner feel confident to support you during birth, and how to navigate a smoother postpartum recovery, my Bump to Birth Method online program is available for you to join. It's three programs in one, covering pregnancy, birth prep, and postpartum recovery, plus you get lifetime access to the program content and bonuses. Bump to Birth Method is my on-demand, self-paced online program where you can learn from the comfort of your own home through video and audio lessons on how to best connect to your pelvic floor and core in pregnancy beyond traditional Kegels, strategies to help common pregnancy pains and pelvic floor symptoms, my top strategies to prepare your mind, body, and pelvic floor for labor, how to best support you and your pelvic floor during pushing, key strategies for your partner to support you during labor, and how to navigate your first six weeks postpartum. Bonuses include expert interviews, core and pelvic floor yoga class, three strength training workouts, hospital and home birth bag lists, meditation tracks for pregnancy, birth, and postpartum recovery. Whether you're preparing for your first or fifth birth, if you're ready to have less pain and pelvic floor symptoms in pregnancy, feel fully prepared mentally and physically for labor and pushing, including how to minimize tearing and how to navigate your first six weeks postpartum recovery, then head to the show notes or go to bumptobirthmethod.com to see what other expecting moms have said about bump to birth and to enroll today. So welcome back to another episode of the Two Birth and Beyond podcast. It's Anita here. And today I have a very special guest on, Trish Ware, who is an L&D nurse who many of you may know from Instagram as Labor Nurse Mama. So over the years, Trish has developed a reputation for making laboring mamas feel empowered and confident, even if she's not in the labor room with them. What's important to Trish is that you have access to the education you need to make informed decisions while you're in labor. She has spent many years analyzing the literature and her own experiences in the labor room, and she's come to the conclusion that two things lead to a successful avoidance of unwanted birth stories, being prepared and educated with proper support during labor. So this is why she's created multiple online self-paced birth courses, and she also has an amazing podcast called The Birth Experience with Labor Nurse Mama. So Thank you so much, Trish, for being on. I'm so excited to finally get to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here as well. 
So why don't we dive in first in terms of like, what got you into nursing and specifically into the L&D side of it? Oh my goodness. So I grew up wanting to be an artist and I was going to go to art school. I was on that path and I got pregnant with my oldest son. I was very young and it was life-changing And I remember when I went into labor and delivery, about to have this baby, I'm young, I already feel, you know, very discouraged, my, you know, my life plans. And my doctor wasn't exactly the best doctor in the world. He treated me like I was a kid, not like a woman having a baby, you know, which yes, I was young, but my life, I was about to journey into motherhood, but my labor nurse Her name was Laura Berry, and she was incredible. And she advocated for me. She helped me. She comforted me. And she just really made a difference. And I remember after I had my son, she came in my room, and my doctor was saying things that weren't very encouraging about my future. (laughs) And so she leaned down and she whispered in my ear, you have choices and you can have an incredible future. I don't remember exactly what, what it was, but that was the gist of it. And so then when I had my second son, she came in on her day off and saw him. And now mind you, this is before cell phones or all of that. So her other nurses told her that I I was telling them how much I loved my first nurse. And so then she actually was my labor nurse when I had my third son And my doctor went to lunch and Laura delivered my son. And I just watched her, especially with my third son, I really watched their, the role and just something inside of me took, took root. And I was like, wow, I really love this. Like I just, my, the whole, the whole pregnancy, the birth, the the entire role that the labor nurse played And so I really just had that in my soul. I wanted to be a labor nurse. Well, I kept having babies. (laughs) And so when I was pregnant with number five, I graduated from nursing school with the sole purpose of being a labor and delivery nurse. And so I actually waddled across the stage, you know, got pinned as a nurse and sat down for my boards on a Friday, had Lainey on Monday. And I knew that I did not want to be a nurse. I wanted to be a labor and delivery nurse. So I got my first job as a labor and delivery nurse. I lucked up. It it takes a lot to get into that role. And so I got my first job. I was gung-ho, ready to go. And I loved it. But I also was a little discouraged about some of the processes, the medical processes, and how the birth was interrupted a lot. And so that's how I ended up where I am now. (laughs) So I've been doing it for a long time. She is now, she's about to be 17. Oh my goodness. Yes. Well, thank you for, yeah, for sharing that. Cause like you can just hear the passion of like all the experiences you went through to get Mm -hmm. here and then how much that first L&D nurse really impacted where Mm -hmm. you are today. And you can see it like on Instagram, on your podcast, you can hear it. So very grateful that you had that first L&D nurse that made that Me impact. Too. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny. I tell people all the time, your labor and delivery nurse can make or break your experience because we are actually with you more than any other provider. So it's really important that um, you create a good bond 
with your labor nurse? Yeah, that's what I tell my clients is that, you know, them and their partner, when you go in, get to know your L&D nurse, because she's going to be the one that's going to be there for the majority of the time. Mm -hmm. So birth preferences, anything around that, like be talking to your nurse about that early Mm -hmm. on, because they can really impact things. So that is really, really awesome to hear. And I've heard how challenging it is to get into L&D itself. So mm-hmm. that's amazing. And you have, we were talking before, you have six kids. So in the intro, I, yes. I have seven. You have seven. <laughs> I have one who's adopted. I've birthed yes. six. Yes. yes. You have so many personal experiences mm-hmm. around this topic too. And then also diving into the evidence and the research around it. So mm-hmm amazing. And so a lot of people want to know too, like when they go in, they have a labor and delivery nurse, how many patients are you typically working with at once? I know it could probably depend on the shift, how busy it is, but on average, how many are you caring for? So if you're a, if you're working on the labor side, so as a labor and delivery nurse, we do antepartum, which is, you know, women who are high risk, who may be having something going on during pregnancy that they're not necessarily going to have their baby. So that's a little different, but if they're in labor, it depends on what's going on. If they're in early labor, we could have two patients, but we never have more than two. I mean, we most often never have more than two patients. We're supposed to not. So remember, if I have two laboring patients, I also have their baby as well. So I've really have four patients, but it really depends on where they're at. So if I have someone who is in transition, ready to deliver, then my other patient, another nurse is going to take my other patient. And then after I deliver mama and get her settled, then I will probably take back my other patient. But most often we have one or two. Okay. And also too, do you find a difference? I know we're, you're in the US, I'm in Canada. We have people listening from around the world. So this will kind of look different depending where you live, but are you there for both, whether it's an OB or GP or a midwife as well? Like, are you a part of both of those different types of births? So I love that you're asking me this because I was just educated about birth in Canada because I just did a podcast with our team doula. We have on, in our birth classes, we have a, a doula who works with us and she lives in Canada. So it is different. We do not have GPs. We have OBs and midwives. Mm-hmm. And so with our OBs and midwives, we work with either one as labor nurses. So if you're listening in Canada, it's different because I, what I've learned that in Canada, your midwife is there with you, laboring you. And if she can't, then the labor nurse is there. But in the US, we're there laboring and our patients are very shocked by the fact that typically their OB will come in in the morning, just depending on their situation and how high risk or what's going on. But a normal average labor, they see them in the morning and they'll see them, you know, when they're admitted. And then we usually call them in when the baby's head is about to come out. So we're with them the most during labor. So that's Mm -hmm. usually surprising to my patients. A lot of times I'll see, and I know the look when we're pushing and they're thinking, where is the doctor? (laughs) You know, so we spend a lot more time with our patients. Yes. Yeah. I think that is really helpful for people to hear because like I said, it's like L&D nurse is such a big part of your team. And 
What about, I wanted to go into birth preferences too with you, because I know that is something you talk about. I typically use the term birth preference versus plan, but they are the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. I just know some people, when they think of a birth plan, they feel that it's really rigid. And I'm like, actually, it should be more about learning your options and strategies. Mm -hmm. And it helps you dive in deeper into maybe what you don't know, or what you may not realize is an option. So as an LND nurse, like there, you have um, someone coming in who's ready to give birth. If they give you a birth plan, what, what kind of comes from that? Or like, do you have suggestions for people when it comes to making birth preferences? So I do. And in our team, we call it a birth map or a birth oh, preference, but we're trying yeah. to transition into birth map. And I tell my girls that your birth map is like, if you're planning an exotic vacation, right? Think of a map as the route to your destination, destination being healthy mom, healthy baby. And I am the most laid back labor nurse. I am so like a hippie labor nurse doula. However, what I tell my mamas is that when they're creating their birth map, that the whole goal is to get to that destination. And so if you were going to Hawaii or somewhere and you get to the airport and your plane is delayed, you're not going to throw your hands up and go home. You're still going to get to your destination. So that's kind of how I present that to my students from the student side. When I have a patient who hands me a birth plan or birth map, I love it because I know that they've, they've done some semblance of research and education and they have preferences. So I know that they're going to be involved in those decisions because part of why I got so disheartened and ended up being on this side of the labor room was because of seeing patients come in and they had no idea what the interventions were, why we use them. They had no idea they could say no. They had no idea they could say yes or ask for alternatives. And so what I tell the you know people that I'm teaching is that the power of that birth map is the education and the diligence that you put into learning what you want in there. Because I, I do one-on-one -on -one consultations and create a birth map, but they're all different, you know? So I love, when I get handed one, I'm like, yes, I love this. And then the other thing that people need to know about the labor nurse is that I can't refuse or accept interventions for you. But if you say to me, I do not want to stay in the bed during labor, then I now have the power to advocate for you for that specific thing. So I love when they have them. I love it. I know there's like this, and, and I've seen it happen that labor nurses um, will scoff at it or say it's bad juju or bad omen. And now we're going to go get your C-section papers. And I feel like that mindset and that projection and that negativity is really unnecessary and that instead of looking at birth maps or birth plans like that, we need to be excited and say, okay, you know, we want the best for your birth. So that's our goal here. We're not going to speak that out into the universe that now you're going to end up getting a C-section. That's a whole nother personal <laughs> little 
soapbox. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's great. I'm so glad you shared that. Cause I do think that is the concern with some that they hear like, Oh, it'll just be disregarded or maybe, you know, the staff won't like it because I'm presenting something like around my preferences. And I find the same as you. I'm just like, I find most times, especially when it's concise, like with my clients and in bump to birth, they get a one page mm-hmm. template because I'm like, staff really appreciate you being mm-hmm. to the point. It also helps you, I think, who is in labor, get to the point versus these five page documents that, yes, you know, won't necessarily get read, but it also doesn't help you yes. as you're researching. So I'm like, so as an L&D nurse, do you appreciate a one page? <laughs> I do. I, I've yeah. told my students before, yeah. like I've gotten eBooks before and I've yes. gotten things on there that they're just not necessary to be on there. And Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I've gotten some really funny ones too, um, but in honor of privacy, I won't share them. But I, what I find with the birth plan is one thing I, I, I will say, don't just go download a template, print Mm -hmm. it, take it. You need to know why you have each thing in your birth map. So if you're saying, I don't want an IV or I only want a saline lock, well, why do we use them, right? So if, because you have to be able to have a dialogue with your provider. So if your provider then says, well, I give everyone an IV just in case of emergencies, well, you need to have something to talk back with them because I don't necessarily agree with that. Or if you want to have a saline lock, then you can tell your nurse like, hey, I put on here, I'm going to have a saline lock. I promise I'll stay hydrated because, you know, dehydration during labor can be not wonderful at all. And so that I, they need to know why, why they're putting in there. If they want delayed cord clamping, don't just say, oh yeah, I'm going to do that because that's the thing. No, why? Because there's amazing benefits. And when you know your why, it's a lot easier to stand up and advocate for that particular point. And I even, with my birth plan consult, we go even farther. We do a one page too. We do not do more than one page. And we break it down into each section. So we have a pain section, we have a labor, a delivery, and a baby. That way, I tell my my students, that way, you know, if she's had a, a nurse who's been laboring her all day and then she's about to deliver and it shift change, the new nurse coming in doesn't necessarily need to know those other sections, but she really want, needs to know really quickly what does she want for delivery? You know, or, or if the baby nurse comes in for delivery, she can look at the baby preferences and she's not like, okay, where's this? Where's that? So I think it's really important for it to be concise, to be clear. You don't need to new, use like really pretty font. <laughs> Yes. You know, I, I, I am about the package. I do like the look of things and details, but try to, you know, try to make it clear and easy to read. And um, I think it is easier for the entire team if it's printed, like typed out instead of handwritten, because yes. I have said, had some handwritten ones. And, you know, the last thing mom wants to do if she comes into the in labor and delivery in full-blown labor is try to explain what she wrote. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, so. And I think it's great, this discussion of like, it's going to help your nurse. If you're with a physician or a midwife, it really helps with your team. And I find it also really helpful for partners to be able to have those discussions with your partner of like when 
you, the one going through labor, like even in pregnancy, start talking about ahead of time, these things that come up, because Mm -hmm. if your partner knows your preferences, they can also advocate because it's that whole support system. Right. Um, And they need to know the whys too. They need to know the rationales. And, and I also tell my girls that there, there are no hard no's or yeses in labor and delivery. So even though I'm all for no interventions, interventions are there for a reason. So we don't want them. I, one of our mantras in our birth classes is nothing out of convenience or curiosity, but that being said, you can't go into your birth saying, I will never let them use a vacuum. No way, no how. Because if your baby's heart rate drops into the 40s and your provider's like, here's the options. I can put a vacuum on. We can have the baby out now, or we can go back and do a C-section. Of course, you're going to opt for the vacuum. So, you know, and, and by being educated, understanding each intervention and why they're used and what, when is it appropriate and having trust with your labor nurse and with your provider, because that, hear me now, that is the most dis- important decision you can make during your pregnancy that directly affects your birth is choosing a provider who's in- aligned with what you want. Because if you have had those dialogues, like Anita said, throughout your pregnancy, we have our girls start talking to them early, having short little conversations early. And If you do that, then when your provider looks at you and says, we need to do this now, you're going to say, you're going to trust them, you know? So I think that's, it's, it's a really important process that isn't just handing a birth plan to your team. It's, it takes a lot and you want to, you want to do that earlier. That's we, we've started doing these five day birth experiences, fearless birth experiences and we're doing one again in July. And one of the free classes that we're teaching is going to be all about creating your birth map. When do I give it? Who do I give it? How do I give it? Because I think a lot of women feel that there's a bad thing about having a birth plan. And then there's also this, I don't want to offend my provider. I don't want them to think I don't trust them, or I don't want them to think I know more than them. This is your birth you're the birth queen, you're in charge, you hired us, you have every right to have a preference. So I think that there's so much that goes in with that topic. And I love that you talked about bringing it up early. I Mm -hmm. talk about that all the time that, because typically if you don't bring it up in your prenatal sessions, it won't come up till 36 or 37 weeks. And in my opinion, that's really late to be talking Mm -hmm. about labor and birth or anything or after baby's born. So I'm so glad you brought that up, Trish, for people to hear as well of like, start talking about this sooner. And you maybe listen to this episode and you're at the end of your pregnancy. So it's never too late to start talking about this with your care provider. But if you can start talking, asking questions sooner, even Mm -hmm. interventions, I'll encourage clients to say, you know what, we'll go through what forceps and vacuum, what that means. And also I go through even possible pelvic floor considerations with it, which in the moment, like you do what you need to do, but it's more about education around, okay, after that, because mm-hmm. there can be different risks with that. So afterwards knowing like, okay, we do want to check certain things after having interventions, but talking to their care provider before, like, when would you suggest forceps or vacuum or how mm-hmm. often do your patients end up needing forceps or vacuum? Like I find mm-hmm. that helps so many 
just take a little bit of the stress off if you have an understanding and have that dialogue before versus the first time you ever hear about vacuum is like in the moment during pushing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I also recommend that for the reason that I am very passionate about our patients or my students or clients being able to leave a practice. So if they start talking about those things early, that gives them a little more time to make a decision. So if they just do not see eye to eye, or or like you said, you ask them how often, and the answer is astounding (laughs) number, and they're not happy with it. Well, the earlier you do that, the more time you have, because the closer you get to delivery, you're going to have that added fear of like, I don't, I don't need anything else to do. And this is too much trying to look for a provider. So, and I, I can tell any of you guys out there that have been uncomfortable or feeling this disconnect with your provider or feeling like you're not on this, the same page. I've never had a student that switches providers regret it, but I've had a lot of students regret staying with a particular provider. So, you know, this is an industry and the only way changes are going to happen is if we really start interviewing providers, finding ones that align with us and not allowing some of the antiquated practices that happen in labor and delivery, like lophotomy pushing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know? we're definitely, we're going to talk about pushing because I definitely <laughs> want to chat, but I think, I think it'd be great if you can share, like, what are all the different tasks that you're doing during labor as like someone is there? Cause again, I think um, the public doesn't always know, like, all of the things that your labor nurse actually does while you're there during entire labor Mm -hmm. pushing and then after. So if you can kind of dive into that a bit, that'd be great. Well, there's so much. So there's the general nursing skills that we have to have. We have to be able to do a full physical assessment. We have to be able to assess you, you know, each time we come in the room, we're looking at you, we're watching you, we're watching your emotional status, your physical status. We're monitoring your pain levels and your coping. Um, that's something we, you know, we chart as well. We are administering medications, starting IVs, doing cervical exams. We are setting up the room for delivery. We're, we're setting up the different, um, you know, the, the monitor, the infant bed and warmer, we are getting you ready for epidurals. We take you back to the OR and we circulate in the OR. Um, we monitor the baby. We have to be pretty skilled in understanding the fetal heart monitor. And um, we, I mean, we do all the general nursing things as well. We're also um, helping you to the bathroom. We're helping you clean. I mean, we do a little everything, a little psych nursing. <laughs> So, you know, so we're going to be like, we really are your main go-to in the hospital. And then after baby is born, we're also responsible for baby for the first couple hours, depending on, you know, the hospital that you're at and how quick you go to postpartum. Um, Sometimes we're floated to postpartum or to nursery. And um, yeah, so we do just about everything. And I I think another thing that um, I feel is important to know about labor nurses And, you know, I don't want to bring people down, but we also handle the tragic experiences that happen in labor and delivery. 
and we're the same nurses that take care of those babies. And so, um, there's, there's a lot, we do a lot, a lot of work, a lot of squatting, bending, picking up. Yes. <laughs> we we're doing a lot of physical comfort and massage and, you know, counter pressure and hip squeezes and tug of wars and, you know, all sorts of things. So yeah, yeah we do a little, a little of everything. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's so helpful for people to hear because I mentioned to people too, I'm like, you're as nurses, I mean, anyone on the team is going to be charting anything. So I'm just oh, like, yeah, we do a lot of that. <laughs> there's a lot. So I'm like, if you see yeah. your nurse, if you see like your midwife, your physician, like writing stuff, like everything is documented or should be documented. So I always say after, like, if you have questions, your mm -hmm. chart should be available for whoever you see Absolutely. at your postpartum. Mm -hmm. to go back and check. So I think some people are surprised of how much of that, like whether it's well, writing or EMR. Yeah. <laughs> so our, our theory is if we don't chart it, it didn't happen. So if yeah. it's not in the chart, then we not, not for the mom's side, but for our mm -hmm. side. Yeah. So yeah, if we come in and we rearrange your pillows and we help you onto the other side, we're going to chart it. Yeah. <laughs> so we chart just about everything. We have to chart every 15 minutes in most cases on the fetal heart condition, like what's going on. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of charting and believe it or not, when I started, it was paper charting and I like it so much better. <laughs> I do like computer charting. It is, but there is something about seeing it and seeing the flow. And yeah. Mm -hmm. So my yeah. old school nurses listening are like, yes, yes, <laughs> that is helpful. And with that too, with all the different tasks you mentioned, like, do you feel, you know, going back to when you said getting in to being an LND nurse and how much that first one made such an impact? Do you feel you're able to be as hands-on as you want to be with all those other things that you're needing to do? Or do you wish you would, you would be able to do more hands-on in general, like LND nurses as well so that you talk to? I am very type A and very organized and I've been doing it a long time. So I'm not on the floor right now. I'm fully immersed in birth education. <laughs> trying to, you know, figure out the hat of owning a business and, you know, doing all these things. So, but I, I got, you know, in the beginning of my career, it was very hard to balance all of that and to find my mojo and my rhythm. But I feel like as a labor and delivery nurse, you have to find your rhythm and you have to be on top of it. So if your patient is sleeping or you're having a downtime, get all those things done because it is very important that we're there to be hands-on. And I, I feel like for me, I'm a, like, I, I was telling my girls the other day, um, we hang out every week. We do a zoom every week, me and my students. And I was telling them, I'm the nurse that the other nurses are like, where have you been? I'm like, Oh, I've been in the room. Like I was looking at her baby shower pictures and seeing her, you know, so I very much bond. I'm very much a relational person and I stay on task and organized most of the time. Now, if I find myself where I've gotten out, you know, cause we have those shifts where all hell hits in those cases. Absolutely. I cannot do as much as I want to do for her. Um, but we also, as labor nurses, if we have a mom come in who has no support, then we're going to do everything we can to, to move around assignments so that she has someone who can be in there with her. 
um, base, best case scenario, you know, but yeah, I would say that the majority of us wish we, we could be more hands-on, but that also depends on you and your organizational skills and, you know, your system. So I am a very hands-on labor nurse. And I would say that the majority of my patients would say, yeah, Trish was in there helping, doing things. Um, I, you know, I, I have a, an, an issue with my lower back because of this. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, I, I think that it really depends yeah. on the facility too, because some civil, uh, facilities are staffed well. I would say right now, I'm sure my sisters in nursing are struggling because of the, the nursing shortage and everything that COVID has brought in the loss of good nurses. So, mm -hmm. you know, long story short. Yeah. Oh, yes, <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. And like, it sounds like too, like, it's probably helpful when like a doula or a partner who is very well prepared mm -hmm with positioning and cause that can just take some load off you. Do you, do you see a difference in those where partners are prepared so they can be actively in it versus those that come in that you can tell, like they probably aren't as prepared um, as maybe they thought they were. So I think it's extremely important that your partner is as educated as you are. And we actually have a companion course called the coach class. And the thing about being a partner in a birth is that it's the exact same thing as being the one giving birth. You don't know what you don't know. And the majority of these couples or these partners, neither one of them have been a patient in the hospital. And that in itself is very disconcerting. Then you add in that she's in pain and her demeanor, her mental state, her emotional state is different than you've probably ever seen. And I think if you're not prepared for the different stages of labor, what's happening inside of her body and how you can work with her body and her emotions, then I think that you're going to leave that birth feeling like you're inadequate or you did something wrong or when really you just weren't prepared. And so I think being prepared is the key to all of birth. And to add even more to that, giving, so we try to give them practical tools, not just like, mm -hmm. this is what's happening. We're like, okay, during this stage, do this, say this. We have them come up with partner scripts and partner affirmations and, um, you know, statements of, you know, during transition, you can't, you can't, you can't help her the same way you would in early labor, you might have to bring out a more commanding voice and uh, give her really concise directions. And so teaching them instead of expecting that they're going to know those things. And then to add in about doulas, I think that if you have the resources to have a doula, I think that is beyond amazing. Not, you know, number one, if, if your labor nurse if we're slammed and I have two patients who are back-to-back -back actively, we're doing this, doing that, or if my other patient has to go back to the OR and someone, ha you know, I have to pass you or give a report to someone else, you've got this continuity of support. And I think that is really important. And the studies show that by having a constant educated support, support person during labor, 
that the chances of having an uneventful vaginal delivery goes up, the chances of a C-section goes down, your perception of pain is less, you, you know, you're, you're, you're actually do not perceive the pain as bad as someone who has no support. So I hate, sometimes I, I hate when I'm sharing that because I have a lot of students who do not have support. So in that case, I want to say your labor nurse will step up and she will be your support as much as possible, you know, and like I said, most units are going to try if we have a mom, we have a lot of military moms and during COVID, of course, we had moms who were alone. So, you know, I, I'm, I do feel like in, in cases like that, if you're listening and you're like, okay, I don't have the finances for a doula and I don't have a partner who's involved and I don't have family or friends that I, I feel comfortable being in my birth because it's very intimate and vulnerable. I, I do want to encourage them that your labor nurse will be there for you. And if your labor nurse is not there for you and you're not happy with your labor nurse, you can always respectfully ask for a new one. So I don't know. That's a long answer too. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. I think it, it support is key during labor. It's this time where like it just makes such a difference. So I think that helps everyone who's listening, regardless of the support they're coming in with to know that their nurse can make such a difference too, if they mm -hmm. don't have that other support is really helpful. Right. So I do want to dive into, cause I know you've posted about this too, is informed consent and reformed mm -hmm. refusal. So like those informed decisions, really, really important. I go through with clients and also hospital policy. So they're like two, I know they're two big topics. Uh, we mm -hmm. could do a whole episode together on those, but in terms of like, I talk to clients, but informed consent isn't, you know, just those papers you sign initially, like informed consent or refusal is a constant ongoing discussion throughout the entire labor, birth, prenatal appointments, postnatal from your side being there. Like, how do you find that typically goes like, do you find you've noticed um, those you work with will already give benefits risk alternatives? Do you find mostly that the patients are having to ask? Or even as the nurse, are you kind of nudging patients that they can ask those questions? If any of my students are listening, they're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I have very strong opinions about all of this. I feel like Typically, informed consent has not been done correctly. I think that we are lacking in the U.S. I don't know about Canada. I think that there has been this general mindset that we're going to come in and do this, and this is just a part of all of it, and you're going to accept it. I talk to my students a lot about this. There's a lot that I was taught in the early part of my career that I now regret just like cervical exams, we were not taught to get informed consent for cervical exams. We were taught that it's just a part of the birth process and they're just going to have to suck it up and deal. That, that's really the gist of it. And I do feel that there is changes. There's a lot of changes that have happened. Number one, because women are having more exposure to the fact that they can say no. I, I can't tell you how many women say, I can't believe that I can do that. Like, and, and so I think that 
in my case, and I'm only speaking and I have done travel nursing my entire career. Now it does also depend on what coast you're in on in the U S as well. Um, the West coast tends to be more birth friendly, I guess, and a little more informative. However, I think that in most cases, I'm, I always joke, there's probably like a, America's most wanted picture of me in all labor and delivery units at this time, because I can get pretty passionate about this. I don't think that in most cases, you're going to find that the, the actual, they're supposed to inform you of the intervention that they, they are feeling is best in that point, the alternatives, the risks, the benefits, um, if you have time to wait and allowing you, if it's not an emergent, if it's not a, like, we need to do this right now, um, they should give you time to talk privately to your partner and make a decision. If we're going back to cervical exams, I think the majority of the way that I've seen it done is that whoever's planning to do it will come and be like, oh, okay, I need to check your cervix, lay down, get in this position. Um, you know, instead of saying, hey, I would like to check your cervix, is that okay? And so I think that there needs to be a cultural change. And I have students all over the world. So this is not just a U.S. problem. Um, and I think that um, it's going to change because women are getting more and more educated. But change in delivery takes, a you know, in labor and delivery takes a long time. So I don't think it's being done properly in most cases. I know a lot of amazing providers and nurses who are very much on this, but I do feel like earlier in my career, the nurses who sat down and really went over every bit of the consent and went through, like, there was almost this like, what are you doing? Just get it signed. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think that the whole culture needs to change. And I think women need to know that they can say yes, and they can say no, and they can ask for alternatives. And, you know, like I said, we say nothing out of convenience or curiosity. So if someone just wants to know what your cervical exam is, and there's really no reason, then, you know, my girls are rebels. So they don't do as many cervical exams as the average pair. So, you know, cause it's really not necessary. Now, if you're an induction, that's different. You know, we do need to know a little bit more cause we need to know is, you know, what we're doing, is it working? I can, I can, definitely go on and on about that. <laughs> oh, no, this is great. My clients will know this sounds very familiar. Because I would say here, I would say it's provider dependent and not the type of provider, but it sounds like similar what you've experienced. It's like the individual provider. Mm -hmm. If they're going to automatically give benefits risk alternatives and give some space or like we use the BRAIN acronym, but I teach all my clients and their partners of like that BRAIN acronym and understanding so that you know, anything that's brought up, including mm -hmm. cervical exams, like if there's really no, re if it's not going to give you information, that's going to help you to know that you can say no, or you need more time. Can you come mm -hmm. back later? Like there's so many different options if it's not an emergency. And even for people to know that I, I tell them when you're the one in labor and it's the first time, it could be the third time, but like, you're not in that environment all the time. Something may appear to be an emergency because you're seeing people come in and out, things move. But then when you ask, they're like, oh no, like they're just, you know, people mm -hmm. are coming in and out to get things. So I was like, if in doubt, like you can also just ask, like, is this an emergency? And you will get a pretty quick answer. And that yeah. goes to better communication to our patients. Mm -hmm. I have a yeah. lot of, you know, I get hundreds and hundreds of DMs and we try to answer them all. And one of the reasons my birth courses were born 
was because of my DMs and the trauma that I saw. And the trauma is most often connected to a lack of communication from the staff to the patient. And so the patient leaves the birth not knowing what the heck happened. So they're having to, like you said, diagnose the situation on their own. And maybe that was just a normal process that seemed hurried or what have you, but they weren't told what that was. And so, you know, and like I said, like I, I'm, I'm guilty of that earlier in my career. I, I learned a lot as I went on that, um, you know, there should always be someone in any situation during birth that is assigned to inform mom and dad and mm-hmm. to let them know what is the team doing? Why are we doing it? And, you know, in a, most cases, there's someone that could do that. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's all hands on deck. But I think that communication is the key there. And the other thing I tell my girls, especially during prenatal visits, sometimes during labor, it's a little different, but hopefully so. And I, I have a great student story on that one. But don't decide in that immediate response emotion, in that reactive emotion. So if you ask, say, can I have time to think? And they say, yes, have everyone leave the room and stop, take a nice, deep cleansing breath, reset yourself and give yourself time to not make that decision and that first fearful reaction. Sometimes providers use tactics that are very scary. And so I think, you know, really stopping and then going back to your education and your knowledge and your understanding I had one of my VBAC students, so we have a VBAC birth class, very passionate about VBAC birth. And um, my student, she was one of my founding members. I had 15 students and I love her story because she was having a, a great labor experience. It's just VBACs can be slower. She wasn't progressing according to how, you know, they want it to progress. She just had a different labor pattern. And so her provider was starting to talk about her pelvis being too small and she probably just can't get this baby out and we should talk about C-section. And she, you know, started to panic a little and her partner said, can everybody leave so we can talk? And so everybody left and he leaned down and he said, we're doing this your way. You prepared. There's nothing wrong with the baby. The baby's fine. No problems. We're doing it your way. And so she pushed the baby out. Like, I'm within the hour. It wasn't much longer. And I always like to share that story because it wasn't an emergent situation. Her life was safe. The baby's life was safe. And just allowing her body time allowed her to have the vaginal delivery that she wanted. Had they just leaned into that, then she could have been on the OR table having an abdominal surgery that she really didn't want. And so I think just letting your body have time if it's not emergent is always a good plan. So what if you're not dilating according to how, you know, this, this process, let your, if everybody's safe, that's okay. I I tell my girls all the time, I'm a weird laborer. I do not labor according to the standards. (laughs) I am three centimeters, three centimeters, three centimeters for hours and hours and hours complete and babies out like just like that. So not everybody labors the same way. And I think we just need to give women's, you know, their bodies more time. 
Yeah, I think that's so good to bring up because in so many ways we are all different. So why should everyone's labor progress in exactly the same way, right? And I love that you brought about that patient, that that's a good segue into pushing because I did want to talk a bit about that because it sounds mm-hmm. like, did she essentially like labor down and then pushed when? Well, she, I, I'm yeah. almost, gosh, now I can't remember if she had a epidural or not, but mm-hmm. very passionate about laboring down. Yeah. Yeah, because I was gonna say, did you see a lot of people labor down or as the the LD nurse, like, were you encouraging people to labor down? Everything's great with like birther baby having that time. Do you feel like that was often supported by other staff? Or do you feel like a lot of it was the immediate pushing and the coached pushing? So insider knowledge, labor nurses for many, many years before laboring down was even like known by the general public, we would just call our patients nine, 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 nine. So we were laboring them down, (laughs) you know, so we had our ways around that. If we knew the providers would not wait. So we know the, we know the providers who, if they hear she's complete, they're going to be in there. They want us pushing. They don't care what station, any of that. So we've had our work rounds on that. For the majority of labor nurses, we love it because we know, I mean, number one, if you're pushing for four hours, we're pushing for four hours with you. And, you know, that it, that can sometimes be, besides helping a new breastfeeding mom, that can be one of the most physically tasking part of our job on, on everyone, even on your partner. It's, you know, so not that I'm taking away from her because it's way harder on her, but we love laboring down as nurses. So we had our workarounds back in the day. I love when my patient has it in their birth plan, because then I can just straight up say she wants to labor down. And I go even farther. I have in our birth maps, we put, we want to labor down until we're plus two. Now I do talk to my, my, you know, my students and say, if you're, you know, if you've got a good rapport with your nurse and she was like, you're plus one, but you know, she has you just bear down a little and that baby moves way down, then, you know, it's a little different. So you, you have to have knowledge to understand those things. But I think a lot of women get very confused when you talk about laboring down because they think they actually have to do something, but it really is your your cervix is completely dilated and you're just going to passively do nothing and allow your body to bring the baby down. And it can cut pushing time down by hours. Yeah. It's so so true. That passive versus active part. Mm -hmm. I'm like educating about that constantly because it's key. And I love that you brought up plus two, because all my clients will recognize that too. Like understanding about fetal station, is really empowering too. not only because most people just hear dilation, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than That's dilation all they and think basement. About. Yeah, and station. So I'm glad you brought that up because I do mm-hmm. find if they can bring that up to plus two, getting baby that low, really helpful and can make that active part of pushing shorter. So yeah, and that's for women with epidurals. I I tell my moms who are going on Medicaid, this is a complete moot point for you because your body is going to tell you when your baby has labored down, your body Mm -hmm. is going to say it. So I think, um, you know, for the epidural moms, they, they definitely need to be knowledgeable. And like you said, so we have a script when your nurse says, Oh, you're completely dilated. 
that's your cue to say, what station am I? <laughs> so it triggers that. And if you're not plus two, then say, then say, I want to labor down. And we practice this. I have a class that every class I teach called push like a pro. And um, we practice that yes. so that they have it in their mind because you're right. I mean, even with my students, I have to work on them because they'll come. We, once my students hit 37 weeks, they have, we create a group chat with me, my doula and my student, and they have access to us, you know, for those fears and those nervousness and the questions like, and pictures, we see lots of pictures of pads and discharge and is this my amniotic fluid but one of the things we tell them because I still I'll they'll say I went to the doctors today and most of my students don't do cervical exams until 40 weeks just because the mental aspect of it but when they do I'll be like well what are you know how faced are you and and what station and a lot of times they'll say well they didn't tell me so I I've made it a point here recently to really drill into them they're not going to, you have to ask because, you know, in their defense, most women don't know all those numbers. So, yeah. but when they come to me and they're asking my opinion, if I don't know those numbers, I can't give them a great, you know, non-medical advice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I think that is helpful for people to hear and really understand the differences. I know we could chat like all day. Forever, about this. Yeah. I love this. I do want to kind of wrap things up with because we've talked about informed consent in that. And I know recently, I think you did a post on this too, is hospital policy, because I find that will come up, right? Someone will ask about something or told they can't do something because of hospital policy. So what does hospital policy actually mean? And what can people ask or talk about when that gets brought up? So it's just that it's the hospital's policy and it's set up for the most part to protect the hospital. And it's set up based on, you know, in some cases, like worst case scenarios. And so I tell my students all the time, like they don't have to follow hospital policies. They have rights and we go over their rights when we admit them. Then when someone stands up for their rights, we're like flabbergasted, like what? So, you know, for instance, eating and labor, that's the hot. So that's the hospital's preference plan, <laughs> birth preference, not yours. So, you know, like a lot of the policies are very antiquated and they need to change. And I, I tell my girls all the time on Instagram and in the classes that the only way it's going to change is if we stand up and say no more. And so, you know, just like delayed cord clamping, that took a lot of women asking for it and insisting on it for it to become, you know, it is moving towards more of a norm. So, and delayed bathing, same thing. So we have to realize that the policies, and I, there's a great quote somewhere by a doctor that I actually worked with. And he, he's saying like hospital policies are okay to be broken. Like that's the hospital's policy. It doesn't mean you have to do it. So in some cases, you know, maybe it's if, if you check into their policies and you don't agree with any of them, it might not be the best facility for you, but you have every right to, you know, if their policy is you have to be in the bed during labor, you have, you have human rights to get out of the bed, you know, so yeah. I can get myself in trouble on that one too. But I think it's helpful to talk about, and again, going back to learning things ahead of time, asking questions ahead of time, because then it gives someone 
the option to look into it more like the Mm -hmm. eating and drinking that is that is from the 40s that is a long time ago Mm -hmm. kind of with how birth was then in the hospital with anesthetic very different than what it's like now but the policy hasn't changed right it's crazy yeah. So asking, like asking those questions, I think is really helpful for people searching out evidence, having those mm-hmm. discussions with their care providers. So, so key. Um, yeah. but yeah, I would love Trish, you have shared so much expertise and I would love for you to share with listeners, you know, how can they hear more from you? You've got the podcast, you've got your classes, you've got Instagram. So share it all. Yes. So you can find me on Instagram as labor.nurse.mama. You can also find our relatively new podcast, The Birth Experience with Labor Nurse Mama. And we have two signature birth courses, Calm Labor, Confident Birth, which is for everyone. We have, we honestly have students who are not pregnant yet, all the way to right before delivery, first time moms, fifth time moms, hospital, home birth, And then we have the VBAC lab, which for those of you who are like, what is VBAC? That's a vaginal birth after cesarean. So that class, it's not just, you know, a little add-on to our birth class. It's a full birth class that's infused with knowledge and power for VBAC moms. And that's for moms who want to have a vaginal delivery. Again, another antiquated practice. Somebody in 1918 said once a C-section, always a C-section. And ACOG does not support that. So I, I, we have the two birth classes and you can find those on labornursemama.com forward slash courses. Those are the main places. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. I know so many listeners are going to be searching you out. Thank you so much again for being on that. That is going to help so many people who are listening who are pregnant or thinking of becoming pregnant. It will be helpful. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 